The title of our seminar is, Is Same-Sex Attraction Sinful? And uh, the necessity of asking that question reflects the increasing confusion with which, uh, within the church uh, on the matter of biblical sexual ethics. Uh, there continue to be mainline churches and denominations caving on the issue of homosexual practice. Uh, not long ago, the United Methodist Church announced the potential for a split in the denomination over whether to ordain unrepentant homosexuals to the ministry. And while I'm sure there are churches who call themselves evangelical, who would also call themselves affirming of homosexuality, uh, there seems to be just enough sanity within the conservative evangelical church to hold the line on the sinfulness of homosexual practice, uh, for which we can thank God. But there is not as much clarity within our circles, us, semi or conservative evangelicalism, broadening out to what you might call semi conservative evangelicalism, not as much clarity on the issue of whether same sex attraction is itself sinful. There's a growing movement afoot that believes that while homosexual practice is incompatible with faithful Christian profession, homosexual orientation is not necessarily sinful. And so they say that those who experience uh, sexual desires for or attraction to members of the same sex do not necessarily need to put off those desires, but instead must redirect those desires in some sort of lawful expression. So the spiritual friendship movement, uh, spearheaded by a man named Wesley Hill, and uh, the Revoice Conference, led by Nate Collins, would be examples of that position. So at the 2018 Revoice Conference, followers of Jesus were encouraged to embrace their identity as gay Christians, even to the point of saying that they are in a mixed orientation marriage with a member of the opposite sex. So they were encouraged to do these things so long as their homosexual desires don't manifest themselves in homosexual acts. Wesley Hill, who is a speaker at Revoice, counsels those who experience same-sex attraction to remain celibate, but to channel the energies of, those, of that homosexual orientation into what he calls spiritual friendships. He says, quote, my sexuality, my basic erotic orientation to the world is inescapably intertwined with how I go about finding and keeping friends. I can harness and guide my sexuality's energies in the direction of sexually abstinent yet intimate friendship. So don't set about to change your orientation. Right? That's virtually impossible and potentially unhealthy to do, he's saying. Instead, find biblically permissible ways to express that orientation, not sexually, but emotionally in friendships. Sam Alberry, an evangelical Anglican minister who speaks of himself as one who experiences same-sex attraction, has criticized the Revoice Conference for defining oneself by their sexual desires. So against Hill and Collins... Alberry says that professing Christians who experience same-sex attraction should not identify themselves as gay. 
Christians don't define themselves by their struggles with sin, but by their union to Christ. And so this is a move in the right direction. However, up until recently, Albury has allied himself with a ministry called Living Out, uh, which is now led by a man named Ed Shaw. Now, Albury's recent departure from Living Out is an encouraging sign, and so I don't want to impute to him positions of a ministry that he has distanced himself from. Uh, but it wasn't long ago that Albury was a member and a leading member uh, of this organization, which is also currently endorsed by Tim Keller and is an organization that has put on events at churches associated with the Nine Marks ministry. Now, I say that only to explain that this is a trend that is taking hold in our circles uh, of conservative evangelicalism. It's not something that's just out there among the mainline liberals. But living out the, the ministry does not believe that it is inherently sinful to experience attraction to the same sex. In fact, their website claims that, quote, many same-sex attracted Christians are both happy in their sexuality, sexuality and the Bible's teaching on same-sex sexual relationships. So that obviously means that they don't believe that the Bible's teaching on same-sex sexual relationships rules out same-sex attraction as sinful in itself. Same-sex attraction, they say, should not be mortified, and attempting to change someone's sexual orientation can actually be potentially damaging. Such would be to, quote, assume that being gay is somehow more problematic than being straight. We believe that heterosexuality, as we encounter it in this world, is just as fallen as homosexuality, end quote. Interestingly enough, on the Living Out webpage, there's a link in support of another partner ministry, which counsels folks who struggle with same-sex attraction to channel those desires in a number of ways without acting on them. One suggestion from that website was to go to gay bars, not to engage in any sort of actions or to have some sort of like romantic hookup, but just to sort of be around the culture and let your orientation kind of breathe. Another suggestion from that same website, from that same list, was to go to nude beaches, which I think we should all just agree is never good advice. In any situation, no matter what you're feeling, do not do that. And so you see the camps that take shape. There's this out-and-out liberal view that recognizes Scripture prohibits homosexuality, but that Scripture should be rejected. So uh, Luke Timothy Johnson, several years back, just flat out says, yep, we acknowledge that the Bible as it's written condemns homosexuality, but because we know better, but because we feel that this is right, the Bible can't be true. That has to be an errant part of the Bible. That has to be something that was influenced by man and not God. Then there is the revisionist view that attempts to make a biblical case for the compatibility of homosexual practice and Christianity. So this is the Matthew Vines thing, this uh, young man who was a a college student who took off years from school not long ago to go and research this thing, and he he, comes out with the book God and the Gay Christian, and uh, he he basically, basically what he does is he he parrots the the thesis of of a scholar named James Brownson, who is basically trying to argue that those six occurrences of homosexuality 
in the text of Scripture don't refer to uh, what we understand homosexuality to be today, but some sort of abusive or or some other version of uh, homosexuality, not committed monogamous homosexual relationships. And so you have a, a revisionist camp. Out and out liberal, yep, Scripture condemns it, we reject Scripture. No, 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 Scripture's really okay with homosexual practice. And we sort of recognize that both of those views are out there. Uh, conservative evangelicalism is not imminently tempted to embrace one of those two clearly unbiblical options. But then, contrary to the traditional Christian position that would identify both homosexual acts and homosexual desires as sins to be repented of, there is the camp that accepts Scripture's condemnation of same-sex behavior, right, but denies that such a condemnation extends to same-sex attraction. And again, this position isn't just held by people who are out there. Wesley Hill is a graduate of Wheaton College. Uh, Nate Collins is a graduate of the PhD program at Southern Seminary. Uh, One advocate of the neutrality of same-sex attraction is an elder at John Piper's Bethlehem Baptist Church and is a regular contributor to the blog at Desiring God. So this is an in-house discussion for us. And I'd even be willing to bet that if we polled the members of Grace Church, we'd find more disagreement on this than some of us would expect. And and I believe that this question, the sinfulness or permissibility of same-sex attraction, is a watershed issue for conservative evangelical conviction on sexuality. We get that the Bible unmistakably condemns homosexual practice. We get that it's unwise and it's contrary to our regeneration in Christ to define ourselves by our sinful inclinations. And so we reject the terminology of gay Christian and the like. But evangelicalism seems to be splitting, or or at least to be confused, over whether sexual attraction to members of the same sex is sinful in itself, or whether that attraction is neutral until it's acted upon. And so this seminar aims to answer that question, is same-sex attraction sinful? And the way that evangelicalism answers this question is going to have far-reaching effects, not only on our doctrine of sanctification in general, but also on our ability to uphold a consistent biblical sexual ethic in the face of so many hostile opponents in the culture. It's my conviction that Same-sex attraction is indeed sin of itself that must be repented of, and that we have a pastoral responsibility to labor with those who struggle with such desires to mortify and forsake them, and that legitimizing same-sex attraction in any sense would be a breach in the dam that will lead to full-scale compromise on biblical sexuality. And I hope in the remainder of the seminar to make that case to you from Scripture. I also hope that there will be some time for questions at the end. Now, what ultimately drives us to have this discussion is our desire to glorify God in Christ by being faithful to His Word and to the holy standard uh, for human sexual ethics to see that standard be upheld in the midst of virulent attacks from the culture. The glory of God and the lordship of Christ has to be our ultimate concern. But we're also driven to have this discussion out of sincere, compassionate concern for those who struggle with same-sex attraction. See, part of the disagreement between faithful Christians on the sinfulness of same-sex attraction comes from a proper, compassionate desire 
to not place an undue burden on genuine followers of Christ who, out of obedience to him, discipline themselves to not engage in any sort of homosexual behavior, but who nevertheless experience enduring emotional and sexual attraction to members of the same sex. And so in their immensely helpful book, Transforming Homosexuality, Denny Burke and Heath Lambert articulate this concern really well. They say, These dear brothers and sisters struggle faithfully and practice chastity, but they sense that they cannot eliminate same-sex attractions that well up within them spontaneously and uninvited. So it seems cruel and unusual to call their unchosen and unwanted attractions sinful. To call their attractions sinful while they are otherwise living a life of faithfulness and chastity seems to load these brothers and sisters up with burdens too heavy for them to bear. And no one wants to sin against them and fall under the censure that Jesus laid against the scribes and the Pharisees. And that is absolutely right. We don't want to be ones who tie up heavy burdens on men's backs and don't lift a finger to help them, right? But if same-sex attraction is itself sinful, if it is not merely homosexual behavior that is, that is prohibited in Scripture, but also the desires and the inclinations of the heart that lead to those behaviors, then making that, that case to our brothers and sisters struggling with same-sex attraction is not placing an undue burden upon them. It is making God's will known to them and bringing the standard of holiness that is laid out for all of us in Scripture, which God gives us for our good and for our blessing. It's making that standard or bringing that standard to bear on one another's lives, which is exactly what I need you to do for me. As, as we all make progress together in sanctification, whatever our struggles are, See, if I'm convinced that some sin I'm committing isn't in fact a sin, I'm not likely to focus very much on repenting from that sin, right? Uh, why repent of something if it's not sinful? But if it is sinful and, and I'm just convinced that it's not, then I'm going to continue in my unrepentant sin and I'm going to cut myself off from the fellowship and communion with Christ that is enjoyed only on the path of obedience, but which is hindered and obscured when sin is harbored and not confessed. And so by identifying sin as what it is, we aim not to place undue burdens upon people, but rather to give people hope that they don't have to be enslaved to their sinful desires all their lives, but can find freedom and wholeness in Christ through the gospel and in his resurrection power, which he gives us to walk in newness of life. Now, another somewhat preliminary remark is to make sure that we know precisely what we mean when we speak of same-sex attraction. So if you need a definition, here it is. Someone who is same-sex attracted is someone who has enduring experiences of emotional, romantic, and or sexual desires for members of the same sex. Enduring experiences of emotional, romantic, and or sexual desires for members of the same sex. So those who have defended the neutrality of same-sex attraction have often argued for a distinction between attraction and desire. 
Matthew Anderson was a speaker at the Revoice Conference, and he puts it this way. One thing which remains after the purification of same-sex sexual desires is the complex set of noticings and attractions toward members of one's own sex. So even though, according to Anderson, same-sex desires can be purified, which means they were once impure, now they become purified because you, you, you get rid of them, desires can be purified, but same-sex noticings and attractions remain, and those don't need to be purified. Now, because the Revoice Conference was held at a PCA church, a Presbyterian church in, the, uh, in America uh, church, the, the Central Carolina Presbytery of the PCA formed a committee to investigate the uh, conference and report any relevant findings. Kevin DeYoung is a name you might recognize. He's, he was part of that committee because that is his presbytery. And in response to Anderson's point about desire, noticings, and attractions, the committee wrote the following helpful assessment. They said this, While noticing is not the same as desire, it's hard to imagine how attraction does not carry some sense of magnetic pull, arousal, or desire. By a simple dictionary definition, to notice is to observe or perceive, while attraction suggests interest and allurement. A mother may recognize that her teenage son is quite handsome, or that her daughter has grown into an objectively beautiful woman. These noticings can take place apart from any sexual longing. But if a mother were to experience any attraction to her son or daughter, surely we would describe this kind of noticing as illicit, as a perverse response, however unbidden, that should be mortified at all costs. In short, while we distinguish between noticing and attraction, we do not see how attraction and desire are fundamentally different moral categories. And I think that that is spot on. To be attracted to someone is to desire that person in some way. To be same-sex attracted, then, is to experience enduring emotional, romantic, and or sexual desires for members of the same sex. And those desires, even if they arise in us somewhat unconsciously and unwanted, are nevertheless sinful and must be mortified and repented of. But why? Why is it that it's not enough to abstain from homosexual behavior? Why are homosexual desires and attractions sinful? And why must we counsel those who struggle with such desires and attractions to repent of them? Well, ultimately, the answer to that question is because of the fundamentally internal nature of sin and holiness. The fundamentally internal nature of sin and holiness. Sin and holiness are matters of the heart, and they cannot be reduced to merely external actions. Genuine, God-honoring, Christ-like, spirit-driven holiness is a matter of the thoughts, of the affections, of the desires, as well as the actions. Because God does not merely command us to behave righteously. Though he certainly does that, he commands us to be holy. And we need to be overwhelmed with this truth that the believer's growth in holiness is fundamentally an internal matter. 
The emphasis on the heart throughout the entirety of Scripture speaks to our need to forsake sin and pursue holiness at the level of the heart and not merely at the level of the hands. So here come a bunch of Scripture passages. Just take down the references. Matthew 5, 8. Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's not enough, Matthew chapter 23, to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside to be full of robbery and self-indulgence. It's not enough to whitewash the tombs, but inside to be full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. What's Jesus say, Matthew 23, 25? First, clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. In Matthew 18, 35, at the close of the parable of the unforgiving slave, Jesus tells us that the father is not satisfied with hypocritical forgiveness. He says the father is going to cast into hell to be tortured those, quote, if if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart, from your heart. So it's not just, all right, all right, fine, I I forgive you, sure, we're done, let's move on. No, 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 if you don't forgive from your heart, you're going to be cast into hell to be tortured. Matthew 18, 35. The greatest commandment in the law, Matthew 23, 37, is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul and with all our mind. In Acts 8, 22, when Simon the sorcerer seeks to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit with money, Peter rebukes him and says, therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Simon didn't need forgiveness merely for his attempted bribery. He needed forgiveness even for the intention of his heart. And so when the gospel releases us from our slavery to sin, how does Paul speak of redeemed believers? Romans six seventeen. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. See, the slave of sin who has then been made a slave of righteousness is one who becomes obedient from the heart internally. Obedient not just outwardly, but from the heart. In Ephesians 6, 5 and 6, Paul commands the slave to be obedient to their masters. He says, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. And that classic text on sanctification, Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says that God is working in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So in progressive sanctification, God works in us, not merely to work, but also to will. He's working even on our desires, our wants, our wills. And so the desires of our flesh, the desires that characterized our old life of sin, they themselves are to be the object of of our mortification. And the New Testament testifies to that just as well. Galatians 5.24 says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So the passions and desires of the flesh must be crucified in principle and then in practice. Titus 2.11 and 12, The grace of God instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. 
And then 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, fleshly desires, which wage war against the soul. And then Colossians 3, 5, and 6. If it's not too far to, to turn to Colossians 3, it's worth just looking at 3, 5, and 6 here. Because Colossians 3, 5 says, we are to, it says, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to, and then it describes actions, external actions, immorality and impurity. Consider your members dead to practicing immorality and impurity. But that's not where it stops. The verse doesn't stop there. We're, we're, to, we're to put to death what is earthly in us, not merely the external actions of sexual immorality and impurity, but then also the internal affections of, look, passion, evil desire, and greed, covetousness, which amounts to idolatry because it's of these things that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And so, friends, holiness is not merely a matter of bringing our outward behavior into conformity with an external standard. Holiness does require a holy behavior, absolutely, but that's not all it desires, or requires, rather. The great Princeton theologian Charles Hodge puts it in a way that is extremely helpful. He says, sanctification does not consist exclusively in a series of a new kind of acts. It is making the tree good in order that the fruit may be good. It involves an essential change of character, just as regeneration is a new birth, a new creation, a quickening or communicating of new life. So sanctification in its essential nature is not holy acts, but such a, state, uh, such a change in the state of the soul that sinful acts become more infrequent and holy acts more and more habitual and controlling. Sanctification is not merely new acts, but it's an internal change in the soul of man. God is at work both to will and to work in us. And so the sanctification that we must press after and that we must urge one another to press after is both internal and external. We must have sanctified affections as well as sanctified actions because God has not simply commanded us to carry out a series of external duties. He's also commanded us to have a particular frame of heart as we do those external duties. You can call them internal duties, if you like. So Micah 6.8 commands us not only to do justly, but also to what? Love mercy. 1 Peter 5.2, pastors and elders are commanded not merely to shepherd the flock of God, but to shepherd the flock of God willingly and eagerly, not under compulsion. I have to be willing and eager if I'm going to obey that text. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, that God loves a cheerful giver. So if God loves a cheerful giver and you faithfully put that envelope in the plate every week, but you do it begrudgingly without cheerfulness, have you obeyed? Well, you've obeyed the command to give, but you haven't obeyed the command to give cheerfully. See, God commands our affections as well as our actions. And that means that the truly holy person does not merely do what God commands, though 
He certainly does that. But it goes deeper than that. The truly holy person loves what God loves. He desires what God desires. He, he is attracted to what God is attracted to. And then he acts in keeping with that renewed heart. To suggest that homosexual desires or same-sex attraction is not itself a sin to be mortified, but that one faithfully follows Christ in holiness so long as he doesn't act on those desires, is entirely out of accord with everything that I just read to you from the text of Scripture. It's not making the tree good, as Hodge says. It's simply chopping off the rotten fruit. It's allowing And even in some sense, encouraging sin to draw life from the soil of corruption and then saying, oh, no, no, it's okay. I'll just cut the fruit off when I see it. But we are not to battle sin merely at the level of its fruit. We are to lay the ax at the root of the tree. We're to cut sin out at the root level of the desires of our heart. What does Jesus say in Mark 7, 21? For from within... Out of the heart of man proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, and so on. All of those sinful acts are rooted in the sinful heart, in the affections, in the desires. It's the desires that produce the behaviors. This is, this is the Sermon on the Mount. You can turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 Jesus quotes directly, or Matthew records Jesus as quoting directly from the the Greek translation of the seventh commandment in Exodus 20.14. You have heard that it was said, Matthew 5.27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. There's a comment about sexually immoral behavior. You've heard, do not commit adultery. But Then in verse 28, Jesus immediately follows his quotation of the seventh commandment with a citation of the tenth commandment. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her, literally to desire her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the term that's translated lust is epithumeo from the Greek translation of Exodus 20, 17, you shall not covet epithumeo, your neighbor's wife. So Jesus is inextricably linking the pre-behavioral sexual desire for a woman or a man, not your your spouse, with the sinful act of adultery. The pre-behavioral desire and the sinful act are inextricably linked. God's law does not merely prohibit the acts of adultery and stealing. It prohibits the covetous and lustful desires that lead to those acts. And friends, the extent to which we disconnect same-sex attraction from same-sex behavior by suggesting that the latter is prohibited but the former is permissible is the same extent to which we will turn biblical sanctification into mere behavior modification. And I'm going to say that again. The extent to which we disconnect same-sex attraction from same-sex behavior by suggesting the latter is prohibited but the former is permissible is, to, is the same extent to which we will turn biblical sanctification into mere behavior modification. It is the extent to which we wholly externalize the concepts of sin and holiness. And yet scripture tells us that sin is not merely what we do. It's not even merely what we feel. Brothers and sisters, sin is who we are. 
It's, sin is not merely our transgression of external laws. It's the condition of our souls. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. The fact that our sinful desires seem to spring from within us so naturally, the fact that we seem naturally oriented to be, uh, to be attracted to a particular set of sinful behaviors only increases our culpability. It certainly doesn't absolve us from it. Like, you know, I, I don't want this. I don't want to want it, but I do. So I, I, I can't be blamed. No, that only testifies to our corruption, right? I'm inclined this way. This, this feels natural. This is who I am. Yes, exactly. This is who you are. When I'm tempted, the fact that I find my temptation so enticing and attractive only means that my sin problem is worse than I thought it was. It reaches deeper than my hands and into my heart, into the very core of my being. And so, because sinful acts are rooted in and spring out from our sinful hearts, biblical sanctification requires more than repentance at the level of our behavior, but at the level of the desires and the inclinations and the attractions that produce those behaviors. So John Murray, longtime professor of theology at Westminster Seminary, said the outward act of transgression is determined by inclination, propension character. The character that produces the act cannot be different as to its moral character from the act itself. In other words, it is sin to be attracted to what is sinful. If I had to boil the seminar down into a single sentence, that's it. It is sin to be attracted to what is sinful. The desire for an illicit end is itself an illicit desire. It is an indication that <clears throat> whatever my, my uh, actions may be, my affections are still sinful. I still want something that my father has told me is not for me to have. I, I, know, I may know that it's wrong to act on that desire, and by God's grace, I may restrain myself from acting upon it. And that's good. It's better to be angry than to murder someone. It's better to be lustful than to commit adultery but I still want something. I'm still attracted to something which does not give me more of my father, which does not lead me to enjoy more of his glory and therefore which cannot satisfy the longings of my soul, but can only deceive, can only be lusts of deceit, Ephesians 4.22, which can only corrupt, which can only plunge men into ruin and destruction, 1 Timothy 6.9. Even to desire those things, to seek satisfaction in things which are not my God nor from my God is evil desire. It is idolatry. It is sin, and it must be repented of. Now, I don't have time for this next point, but I'm going to try to comment on it briefly. But those of you who are interested in this issue should read all you can on the historical debate between the Roman Catholic and the Reformed doctrine of concupiscence. How many of you have heard that term before? Understandable. Concupiscence, C-O-N-C-U-P-I-S-C-E-N-C-E. And concupiscence speaks of involuntary desires that have been disordered by sin. Involuntary desires which have been disordered by sin, which is pretty much exactly what we're talking about here, isn't it? I mean, 
They've been, people have been debating this issue without this expression of the issue since the Reformation at least. And interestingly, Roman Catholic theology holds that concupiscence is not sinful, while Reformed theology has always held that concupiscence is sinful. And like I said, I don't have time for this, so I'm just going to read a summary paragraph of the historical debate from the Central Carolina Presbyterian's report on the Revoice Conference. So I, I mentioned this before. This is the, 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 the presbytery, the group of elders in a bunch of Presbyterian churches in a particular region, like analyzing this conference and rendering a report on this. So they write this. How we describe our involuntary disordered desires is a major difference between a Roman Catholic understanding of sin and a Reformed understanding of sin. According to the Catholic Catechism, the, quote, inclination to sin that tradition calls concupiscence is left for us to wrestle with, but it cannot harm those who do not consent, end quote. There's your Catholic definition. It's we wrestle with it, but it doesn't harm us unless we consent to it. Elsewhere, the Catholic Catechism explains that, quote, concupiscence stems from the disobedience of the first sin. So the reason we have these desires is because of original sin. It unsettles man's moral faculties and without being in itself an offense, inclines man to commit sins. So you hear it? It's not an offense to itself be inclined to sin. It's an offense only to commit it. This is the Catholic Catechism. End quote. In other words, here's the Presbytery's report or comment on that. In other words, disordered desire, though a result of the fall, does not become sin apart from a consenting act of the will. The Reformed tradition has uniformly disagreed with this understanding of concupiscence. The Reformation, writes Bavink, Herman Bavink, Reformed Dogmatics, the Reformation spoke out against that position, asserting that also the impure thoughts and desires that arose in us prior to and apart from our will are sin, Bavink says. Calvin explicitly teaches that these, quote, in order, inordinate desires, in the Latin concupiscentius, so concupiscence, right? These inordinate desires, Calvin says, should not be called merely weakness, but sin. We label sin, he writes, that very depravity which begets in us desires of this sort. We accordingly teach that in the saints, until they are divested of mortal bodies, there is always sin. For in their flesh there resides the depravity of inordinate desiring which contends against righteousness. Now, history is not a hermeneutic, right? Truth is not established by whether our heroes taught it or whether heretics taught against it. But nevertheless, I do find it interesting that historically speaking, proponents of the neutrality of same-sex attraction are basically practicing a fundamentally Romanist homardiology and an anti-reformed homardiology, doctrine of sin, explicitly in opposition to the reformers who these folks would regard as their own theological forebears. So, that's, a, like I say, a really quick discussion of the historical debate. If you wanted more about that, you could read Bavink, Volume 3, in the 140s, um, uh, Reform Dogmatics, Volume 3, pages 140 and following, and Calvin, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 3, Chapter 3, or is it section and chapter? Book 3, Chapter 3, and Section 10, uh, and other places in Book 2 and 3. Books 2 and 3, you can, it's online, so you could search for it. Uh, and search for the, the, the text of concupiscence or inordinate desire, and you'll find it. Now, that's my case. But as I discuss the nature of temptation and the sinfulness of same-sex attraction and other sinful attractions, 
the principal objection that I receive is that simply experiencing temptation cannot be sinful in itself because Hebrews 4.15, turn there, because the Lord Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. To be attracted to sin, they say, is precisely what it means to be tempted to sin. By saying same-sex attraction is sinful, aren't you saying, Mike, that people sin simply by virtue of being tempted? And in that case, do you not undermine the sinlessness of Christ who was tempted? That is an important objection, and it must be answered. In fact, I think a proper understanding of sin and temptation is the crux of this debate. This objection, though plausible, conflates two kinds of temptation, or at least two ways that Scripture speaks of temptation. Namely, what we might call external temptation and internal temptation. External temptation is temptation that is experienced entirely from without. It is an external solicitation to sin. External temptation is what Jesus experienced in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 when Satan tempted him to turn stones into bread, to fall down and worship Satan, and to throw himself from the cliff to prove that he was the Son of God. It was not sin for Jesus to be tempted in this way, to be the object of Satan's external solicitations. So, for example, if someone comes up to me and says, Mike, look at this girl over here. She's got barely anything on. That person, external to me, has tempted me to sin. But if in this instance, if such an external temptation finds no place in my heart, no place in my affections, if there are no hooks in my heart in that moment to dispose me to yield to that temptation in that instance, If, by God's grace, I was so satisfied in Christ and in the communion with him that I enjoy on the path of obedience, that the path of disobedience looks utterly repulsive to me and has no pull on my affections, and if my delight in the glory of the Lord was such that that kind of temptation is lost on me and I refuse, I have not sinned. And so it is not my position that all temptation is sinful. To be tempted externally is not in itself sinful. But to be tempted internally is what James talks about in James 1.14 when he says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust or his own desire. Internal temptation is temptation that arises from within my own sinful heart and is owing to the fact that my affections and my desires and my inclinations and my attractions are still sinful. I still want what my father has told me is not for me to have, which, as we said before, does not lead me to enjoy his glory in greater measure and therefore which cannot satisfy my soul. For me to desire those things For me to find alluring and attractive and satisfying those things which exchange the truth of God for a lie, Romans 1, is to commit idolatry. And so in this same scenario where someone comes and urges me to look at an immodestly dressed woman, if there were hooks in my heart, if the external temptation combined with my own evil desires to gratify the lust of my eyes, even if I didn't turn around and actually ogle that woman, 
I have still sinned in my heart. I have still desired that for which there is no lawful expression. That which the Lord has told me is not mine to have. Then I need to repent of that desire and I need to aim to mortify it in such a way that if I were presented with that kind of external temptation again, that my heart would be in such a frame as to have no hooks for that temptation. And so the reason that it was not sin for Jesus to be tempted in the wilderness is not merely because he never performed the acts that Satan urged him to perform. It was because Christ never even desired to perform them. In other words, Satan's external temptation never passed into internal temptation in Jesus' heart because Jesus was sinless, because he had no sin nature, because as he himself said in John 14, 30, the ruler of this world has nothing in me. There was nothing in his sinless nature that could have even produced a desire for evil. And that means whatever temptations Jesus faced were external temptations. If there were any hooks in Jesus' heart onto which sin could legitimately latch, if in the wilderness he thought, oh, I would so love to demonstrate my power and my glory as the eternal son apart from my father's plan. But no, 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 I can't do that. He would have desired what his father said was not for him to have, and he would have become a transgressor. He would not have loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not all his heart. In our case, Galatians 5.17, the spirit sets his desire against the flesh. There is a war, Romans 7.23, that's being waged in the midst in the, in among our members. But with Jesus, who came in the likeness of, of sinful flesh, Romans 8 through 8, 3, but who had no genuinely sinful flesh. He had flesh, but not sinful flesh. There was no internal war. He not only performed righteousness, he loved and desired righteousness at every moment. He never desired to do anything but the will of his father. John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5, 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For what the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. I can do nothing but what my father does. Christ was holy in his affections as well as his actions. To not be so would have undermined his sinlessness. And so John Owen, who I heartily recommend to you, John, just about everything, um, but certainly on sin and temptation, he says this, there is something in our temptations more than was in the temptation of Christ. There is something in ourselves to take part with every temptation. And there is enough in ourselves to tempt us, though nothing else should appear against us. With Christ, it was not so. And then he cites John 14, 30. Again, the ruler of this world has nothing in me. Satan has nothing in me to correspond with or to combine with or to conspire with his external solicitations to sin. You say, now, wait a second. Turn back to Hebrews 4. Wait a second. 
Doesn't Hebrews 4.15 say Jesus has been tempted in all things like we are, as we are, yet without sin? Doesn't that mean that he would have had to experience the temptation to same-sex attraction? I gave a version of this message as a seminar at Shepherd's Conference, and a few weeks later I got a letter asking me that very question. But the answer is no. Hebrews 4.15 does not mean that Jesus experienced each and every trial, both external and internal inducements from without and and enticements from within, that each and every human has ever faced. I mean, that, that upon a moment's reflection, that ought to be self-evident. Jesus was never tempted with those temptations that are peculiar to be, being a husband or a father. He was neither, right? He was never tempted with those temptations and trials that are peculiar to growing old and feeling the infirmities of, of mind and body that, that, that decaying as a, as a, due to the curse of sin. Temptations, for example, that might be associated with forbearing arthritis and dementia. Jesus died in his early 30s. He never had to experience those. Nor was he ever tempted with those temptations and trials that are peculiar to being a woman. He was not a woman. He liked enduring the physical pains of childbirth or the emotional trials of hormonal issues. So that interpretation is false on its face. But it's also false exegetically. The phrase, in all things, in Hebrews 4.15, ought not to be understood to have an absolutely universal sense. How do I know that? The phrase is used only one other time in the book of Hebrews, turn to chapter 2, verse 17, where the author is also discussing Jesus' temptations in verse 18. Hebrews 2.17, he says, Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things, same phrase, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Now, in 2.17, we don't even have the qualifying limitation that we have in 4.15, yet without sin. And even still, we recognize that that in all things cannot possibly have an absolutely universal sense. Jesus was not made like his brethren in absolutely all things without exception. His brethren were sinners. He was not. His brethren were born according to natural generation because of a union between father and mother. Jesus was not. He was begotten by the Holy Spirit in the virgin's womb. And we could go on. When we read Hebrews 2.17, we don't force a wooden universality on the expression in all things. No, we understand the author's point. Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things that required him to be a suitable substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. But for the very same reason that he had to share our humanity, that is to be our mediator, he could not share our sin, whether in act or in heart. And so we ought not to read in all things as absolutely universal. Our reading is tempered by the context as well as Scripture's unified insistence upon the sinlessness of Christ. And the same should be the case in our reading of in all things in Romans or in Hebrews 4.15. And all the more, since we do have this qualifying and limiting phrase, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted without sin. The point isn't merely that Jesus was tempted with the result that he never sinned. That, that's true, and it, but it's not the whole point. It also means that sin was never the principle of Jesus' temptations. Sin never made it so that temptation arise from within Jesus' own heart. Sinful people like you and me are often tempted to sin by by the sin that is resident within us. External temptations combine 
with the indwelling sin in our flesh to induce us to outward acts of wickedness. This is what James means when he says each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. But Jesus could never have been tempted in that way because he had no sin, no indwelling sin to cooperate with external allurements. This is at least one way in which Jesus' temptations are different from ours. It's an example of what it means for his, his temptations to be according to the likeness of ours. That's actually the literal translation of the phrase as we are in, in 4.15, according to the likeness. He was tempted in all things according to the likeness of our temptations. But the difference was his temptations were without sin and so unlike ours in that way. And I want to quote John Owen again. Uh, in addition to his awesome works on sin and temptation, he has a seven-volume, two-million-word commentary on the book of Hebrews. <laughs> and so pretty much if anybody is saying anything about Hebrews, John Owen has thought about it and has written an opinion. Um, so this is, this is excellent. This is in, in uh, would this be here, volume three of his Hebrews commentary on Hebrews 2. He says, Jesus, He, Jesus, was also like unto us in temptations for the reason which the apostle gives in the last verse. But herein also some difference may be observed between him and us. For the most of our temptations arise from within us, from our own unbelief and lusts. Again, in those that are from without, the temptations that are from without, what I've been calling external temptations, there is something in us to take part with them, which always makes us fail in our duty of resistance and oftentimes leads to further miscarriages. But from these things, Jesus was absolutely free. For as he had no inward disposition or inclination unto the least evil, what I've been calling internal temptations, being perfect in all graces and all operations at the same time, or at all, sorry, being perfect in all graces and all their operations at all times. So when the prince of this world came unto him, he had no part in him. John fourteen thirty. Nothing to close with his suggestions or to entertain his terrors. Elsewhere, Owen comments on the phrase without sin in Hebrews 4.15, and he writes, And hereby the apostle preserves in us due apprehensions of the purity and holiness of Christ, that we may not imagine that he was liable unto any such temptations unto sin from within, internal temptations, as we find ourselves liable unto, which are never free from guilt and defilement. So Christ was tempted by all kinds of temptations common to man in a manner similar to us, but without sin. And so never in a way that his temptations arose from within. He was tempted externally like we are, yet without sin and thus not tempted internally. Owen explains this distinction between internal and external temptation really well in his book, The Nature and Power of Indwelling Sin. He says, now, what is it to be tempted? Uh, this is really, really good. What is it to be tempted? It is to have that proposed to a man's consideration, which if he close with, it is evil. It is sin unto him. Temptation is to have this proposed to your mind, which if you accept, if you close with it, it's sin. This is sin's trade, epithume, it lusteth. It is raising up in the heart, and proposing unto the mind and affections that which is evil, trying, as it were, whether the soul will close with its suggestions or how far it will carry them on, though it do not wholly prevail. And here's the key. Now, 
when such a temptation comes from without, it is unto the soul an indifferent thing, neither good nor evil, unless it be consented unto. But the very proposal from within, it being the soul's own act, is its sin. The proposal of temptation from within the heart of man is the soul's own act, and therefore it is sin. The temptation of same-sex attraction is an internal temptation. It is to be carried away and enticed by one's own desire, and therefore it is sin. Now, someone will say, you quoted James 1 a couple of times. But doesn't the progression of thought in James 1, 13 to 15, distinguish sin from desire? Let's turn to James 1. James says, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust or his own desire. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Mike, you're saying the desire is sin. But James says that desire leads to sin. This is another good objection, and and it's one that needs to be answered. And the answer comes in the New Testament's usage of the term hamartia, the word for sin, which it uses in at least two distinct senses. Some texts speak of sin as a reference to a particular sinful deed or behavior, right? The prodigal son comes home to his father and he says, Father, I have sinned. I've committed actions that have violated both you and heaven. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not worthy to be called your son, right? I have sinned. That's the word for an external act of of commission of sin. But in other texts, that same term, sin, hamartia, refers to that principle of sin or that condition of sin or the inclination to sin that resides in the heart. This is the, the law of sin in the members of my body, which wages war against the law of my mind, Romans 7, 23. That's not any particular commission of an act of sin externally. That's the law that is resident within me. So the term can be used in both ways. And interestingly, of the seven times James uses the word hamartia in his letter, every other occurrence is a clear reference to sinful deeds. 2.9, James 2.9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin, right? There it is, commission of an external act. You're showing partiality. James 5, verse 16, confess your sins to one another. He's not saying walk up to each other and say, hey, I'm sinful. I have have indwelling sin because I'm a member of the human race affected by original sin from Adam. I confess that to you. No, he's saying confess your acts of sin to one another, the expressions of that internal reality. So every other time James uses the term, it's about this external act. So given James's usage of the word in the rest of the letter, coupled with the New Testament's teaching on the fundamentally internal nature of sin and holiness that we saw earlier, I believe we are constrained to interpret the word sin in James 1.15 to, to refer to the commission of sinful acts. So in this particular verse, James is speaking of sin as the external act of committing sin. He doesn't mean 
to restrict sin to be wholly external rather than internal, right? That would be to undermine clearly contradictory to all those other passages we read earlier about the fundamentally internal nature of sin and holiness, the nature of sin and holiness being in the heart, right? But in this instance, he's talking about sin as the commission of the act. And so it's always good when you have you know, a giant of the faith who agrees with your interpretation of things. John Calvin, in his commentary on James 1, says this. He, he explicitly distinguishes his view on this from the Roman Catholic doctrine of concupiscence. So he brings up concupiscence here in James 1. Is desire of itself sin or is it neutral until it's consented to? He recognizes James 1 to be a battleground text on this issue. So he brings that up and he says this. It seems, however, improper and not according to the usage of Scripture to restrict the word sin to outward works, as though indeed lust itself were not a sin, and as though corrupt desires remaining closed up within and suppressed were not so many sins. But as the use of a word is various, there is nothing unreasonable if it be taken here, as in many other places, for actual sin, that is, the commission of external acts of sin. And the papists, the the Roman Catholics, ignorantly lay hold on this passage and seek to prove from it that vicious, yea, filthy, wicked, and the most abominable lusts are not sins, provided there is no assent. Because James here does not show when sin begins to be born so as to be sin and so accounted by God, but when it breaks forth. See what Calvin's saying? James isn't telling us when sin begins He's telling us when sin breaks forth. Sin begins in the heart and breaks forth in the commission of the hands. The Central Carolina Presbytery gives helpful comments on Calvin's comment there. So they comment on his commentary. They say, for Calvin, there is indwelling sin, the temptations caused by desire in verse 14b, actual sin, the birth of sin in verse 15a, and perfected sin, the deadly, fully grown sin in verse 15b. When James talks about temptations leading to sin, he does not mean that the temptation in this case is itself morally neutral. The one who is experiencing temptation caused by his own desire, epithumias, is already experiencing the reality of indwelling sin, though that indwelling sin in the Christian can be resisted so as not to give birth to actual, that is, acted upon sin. The process, this is so important, the process outlined in James 1, 14 and 15 is not one that moves from innocence to sin, but rather one that sees indwelling sin move from the mind to the affections, to the will, and then finally to the outworking, outward working of sin in the life and death of a person. Okay, it is not what you're reading in James 1 when sin gives birth, to, it gives birth to death, so and so on, right? It's not innocence to sin, but indwelling sin moving from the mind to the affections to the will and the outward working of sin. James is simply saying that sinful desire gives birth to sinful acts. But it doesn't follow that the desire he speaks about is morally neutral. I mean, look at the text. He says that desire lures and entices the sinner away from faithfulness and into disobedience. That's not a neutral desire. That's why the NAS translates epithumia as lust and not desire here. Lust and desire are the same word. But it's plain from the context that there is a sinful character to this desire. And so they say, well, yeah, this is clearly lust and not mere 
neutral desire. And so this objection from James 1, while initially plausible, turns out not only to fail to establish the neutrality of desire, but upon closer examination actually establishes the sinfulness of desires. That is what covetousness is. It is a desire for anything that you cannot righteously have. A desire that has no lawful expression. Sexual attraction to members of the same sex fits that very definition precisely. Some people are going to say, look, hey, it's not a sin for a man to find a woman attractive, right? So long as it doesn't pass into lustful desire. Why can't it be the same for a man finding men attractive? Well, again, as we said at the beginning, same-sex attraction goes beyond noticing that someone is objectively pleasant-looking, right? It's more than that. But the answer to that question, why, why is this, if, if it's okay for heterosexual, why is it not okay for homosexual? The answer is heterosexual desire and homosexual desire are different things. It's as simple as that. The morality of a desire is determined by its object. Not, it's not a matter of intensity, like, well, I, I, I want that, but only a little bit. It's not a matter of chosenness. Well, yes, I confess I want it, but I really don't want to want it. It's a matter of the thing desired. And so the object of heterosexual desire may be lawfully expressed within the covenant of marriage. But the object of homosexual desire cannot be lawfully expressed. And a desire for which there is no lawful expression is the definition of covetousness. It is the, the very evil desire which Colossians 3.5 commands us to regard as dead to us in which Colossians 3, 6 says, brings about the wrath of God upon unbelievers. Now, I want you to hear me. I I don't want to be misunderstood. I am not saying that anyone who struggles with same-sex attraction is excluded from salvation. I'm not saying that they must not be a Christian. I'm not even saying that they must pursue experiencing opposite-sex sexual desires. But they must be exhorted to put off their sinful affections, just like someone who finds themselves particularly susceptible to the temptations of indulging desires for fornication, or adultery, or drunkenness, or acts of violence. Phil Johnson tells a story that occurred in his early years at Grace to You that I think sheds some light on the issue. He says, a man wrote our ministry looking for affirmation and encouragement. He wanted us to agree with his belief that mere attraction to a forbidden object is not inherently sinful. He gave a convincing testimony about his conversion from a life of sin and rebellion. He said he was now serving as an Awana leader in his church. Then he got specific about what he was asking us to sanction. He said he felt sexually drawn to, quote, large farm animals. True story. Those were his exact words. End quote. So what do you tell that man on the phone? Tell him his sexual attraction to large farm animals is morally neutral, just so long as he doesn't act on his desires. Hey, hang out at the farm. Don't do anything. Just let it out. Just kind of be around. No. What about the man who, for as long as he can remember, has been marked by a sexual attraction to young children? Do we tell that man to befriend children for the purpose of finding an appropriate expression? for his, his forbidden desires? No. 
we tell them both to put those evil desires to death and to run away from any situation which would arouse those desires, to flee sexual immorality, to leave the coat in the hand of Potiphar's wife and get out of there because those desires themselves are sinful. Not because of how uh, intense they are or how lack of intense, not because of how chosen they are. He may hate the fact that he's attracted to large farm animals or a man is attracted to children, but because of the object of their desire, which is forbidden. What about Christians who struggle with anger to the point that they're tempted to physically harm others? That was something for me when, when I was an unbeliever, that was a big deal and something that I needed to mortify or very early on and struggled with in my early Christian life. We don't teach violence attracted Christians to go to conferences where they learn to be happy with their orientation and happy with scripture's teaching on anger and violence. No, we teach them to confess those inclinations and attractions as sinful, to put them to death by the spirit and to walk in accordance with the gospel by which they profess to be saved. You see, instead of giving the hope of freedom from bondage to believers who struggle with same-sex attraction. The perspective endorsed by Collins and, and Revoice and Living Out defines the problem away. But here's what I want to appeal to you to recognize. We have, friends, so much more, better news than that. So much better news than, I guess you're stuck. You have to learn to manage this. Now, we have a gospel of sovereign grace that brings genuine reorienting freedom through faith in Christ. Yes, we are constrained by Scripture to confess that same-sex attraction is in itself sinful, but we are constrained by the very same Scriptures to declare, 1 Timothy 1.15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and not only to justify sinners on the basis of his own perfect obedience, but also to sanctify sinners by the exertion of the same power that raised him from the dead. Resurrection power is at work in, in, in the lives of believers for sanctification in those who trust Christ. And so while it would be unwise to promise or to expect immediate change, or, or that one day Jesus is just going to zap sanctify you from any trace of struggles for, with same-sex desires or any other sinful desire. Nevertheless, we can have great hope. We should not regard sexual orientation as immutable. We should regard it as an area of our lives over which Christ our King exerts His Lordship. And we should trust Him to do far abundantly more beyond all that we can ask or think through the means of grace which he has appointed for us in our sanctification. And one last word. We ought to worship Jesus Christ. We ought to worship our great captain of salvation, our champion of perfect righteousness, who never sinned by having sex sinful sexual desires. I mean, think of it. A man like us, a human being like us, tempted as we are, yet without sin without sin in hand, without sin in heart, perfectly pure. Your Lord walked as a man on this earth and he never took advantage of anyone with a lustful glance. 
He never viewed others as an occasion for his own gratification. He always interacted with his neighbors in perfect purity. He always lived for their benefit and never once sought to use anyone for his own illicit gain. I mean, what a man. What a savior. And whether we struggle with same-sex attraction or whether we struggle with attraction to any other sin, the cry of our heart has to be, oh, how I want to be a man or woman like him. Father, make me like the Lord Jesus. I want to so serve people that it doesn't even enter into my mind to use someone for my own illicit gratification. I want to live in perfect purity like my Savior did, like the God-man did. And praise God that where I have failed, he has succeeded. Where you have sinned, friend, he has obeyed. And he freely credits that real life, lived out, perfect life of obedience to you and to me and to all who come to him in repentant faith. And the contemplation of that glory of Jesus is what transforms us into the same image from glory to glory, from the inside out. And so may we look to him and may we point others to him, no matter what their sin struggle, so that Christ may get what he is worthy of until all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Let me pray. Father, we stand in awe of Jesus, our Savior. We, we behold in the pages of Scripture the testimony of his sinlessness. We behold glory. And so we're bowed to the dust. We are bowed in humble awe and wonder. How could it be that one who shares our nature could be perfectly holy? That view of Christ is transforming. Father, may it be transforming to those who are listening. May it, may it be sanctifying so that just the sight of the Holy Christ would cause us to more earnestly imitate his holiness, his example, and give us the power to do it, not just by showing us what perfection looks like and saying, okay, now work it up, but by transforming us and giving us the power to follow in that example. We long for holiness, not merely from one set of sinful attractions, though we really do ask and earnestly plead that you would help our brothers and sisters who struggle with same-sex desires to be rid of them, to be, to be conquering those desires to have victory so that they are not ruling their life, so that they are not a constant source of temptation. But Father, I pray the same for myself, and I pray the same for everyone in here with whatever desires happen to be our particular struggle whether it's heterosexual lust, whether it's theft and covetousness, whether it's uh, the, the desire for, for larger houses and boats and cars and things, whether it's impatience, whether it's uh, bitterness, whether it's lack of unforgiveness, whatever it is that we desire that is not for us to have, I pray that this sight of Christ would be transforming and that we would help one another by holding up this Christ to our view, to the eyes of our hearts, that we would labor alongside one another to, to, to undo the power of sin in our lives, that we practically walk in the holiness that has been purchased for us by Christ on the cross and has been promised to us by virtue of his death-conquering, sin-conquering resurrection life, which is now at work in us who believe. And Father, may it be that we get this issue right, 
not only for our own lives, but so that we can hold the line as faithful witnesses to your truth in the midst of a culture that is so virulently and, and, and hostily committed to undermining the truth of, of Scripture on, the, on these particular points. And that we would hold the line and faithfully proclaim what God demands of the world, how far short they fall of it, and how welcome they are to this Christ who has accomplished righteousness in their behalf. Make us an evangelistic people. Make us a a helpful, compassionate people for those who struggle. Make us a, a people victorious over sin. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.